Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program with a study from two different universities, University of Toronto and the University of Nebraska. And it's really important because it shows how we can use something from nature, natural, non-toxic, to prevent breast cancer. And it's all about the gut. Once again, as I've mentioned a thousand times, your bacteria in the gut will determine the health or lack of health, strength or lack of strength of your immune system. But it does a lot more, especially when it comes to flax seeds. Flax seeds could reduce breast cancer risk. That's very important. And how does it do that? Because flax seeds contain elements called lignans, L-I-G-N-A-N-S. And they've been shown to influence the relationship between gut microorganisms and the expression of mammary gland microRNA. That's a subset of these RNA regulates the genes involved in breast cancer, including genes that can control cell proliferation and migration. So that's very important. So you want lignans? Take flaxseed. You can take shared flaxseed or flaxseed oil. Both are plentiful in lignans, and that reduces breast cancer death in postmenopausal women. That's important. Now, our next study comes from the National University of Singapore. Consumption of a bioactive compound from the neem plant, N-E-E-M plant, could significantly suppress development of prostate cancer. Yes, just simply orally administering what is called nimbolid, that's N-I-M-B-O-L-I-D-E. Again, just so you can write it down. N, that's N as in Nancy, I-M as in Mary, B-O-L-I-D-E, over a 12-week period, reduced prostate tumor size by up to 70% and decreased tumor metastasis by 50%. That saves lives. And that's that's a very big deal. So just want to share that with you. So name is important. Now another a good study comes from Georgia Institute of Technology. Dehydration causes your brain to swell, making it harder to complete everyday tasks. But Gary, everyone has access to water, juices, liquids. Yes, but do you realize when you're drinking caffeine, that's actually a diuretic that'll throw a lot of liquid out of the system and a lot of vitamins, especially people who take their vitamins with coffee. But also, the older someone gets, the less aware they are of whether they're hungry or thirsty. There's a substance that manifests in allowing us to be hungry or thirsty. And otherwise, we suffer from hydrodipsia or polydipsia in the brain. That's what happens and then the brain swells. And that makes it all the worse. This was published in Psychological Reports. So when you are not fully hydrated... And you should count the amount of liquid. First thing in the morning, I get up. I have a glass of warm water with the juice of two lemons squeezed into it. It's 16 ounces. When I come back from my workout, I have another 16-ounce glass, but this time it's coconut water. Now, that gives me 32 ounces just at the start of the day when the body needs it most, and that's before I consume any food. 
I don't want to be consuming food and have my food floating around in so much water because then the body tends to dump it without being fully digested. So in any case, measure how much water you're having in a day. Buy yourself an inexpensive impedance machine. It looks like a little scale. In fact, it is a scale. They run around 40, 50 bucks, but here's what it does. You program into the cell, male or female, athletic or not, your weight, height, age, and then that's set. Now you get on it in the morning and it tells you how much body fat you have, body mass index, how's your bones? Are they thickened or thinning? Tells you if you're suffering from osteoporosis. And how's it much lean muscle mass do you have? Are you losing muscle mass? How hydrated are you? And what's your overall weight? That's wonderful to have that. And if you went to a doctor's office or you went to a physiologist's office, you'd be charged $150, $200 for that same thing you're doing for, in effect, free. But that way it tells you that you're not dehydrating. And people in nursing homes, people in assisted living centers, people who are sedentary, tend to dehydrate the most. That shrinks your, um, that swells your brain and limits your capacity for repetitive tasks. Simple. Our next study comes from Columbia University Medical Center, an article published in the American Journal of Cardiology. The ultimate stress buster, they say, is L-theanine. That's the letter L-T-H-E-A-thea-9-N-I-N-E, N-I-N-E, meaning amino acid about 200 milligrams. Now, the article was published in the American Journal of Cardiology, and it just shows that it's really important to reduce both stress and your heart rate. And you don't want a high heart rate. You want a lower heart rate. Ideally, for most people, in the 60 beats per minute. Now, of course, when you're exercising, it's going to go up. When you complete your exercise, it'll go down. So you need that because every organ has a biological clock. And within that clock, there are what are called telomeres. And within that, there's an enzyme called telomerase. And when you're exercising properly, you lengthen and stay longer the telomeres, which are the uncaptured chromosome. So quite simply, eating a healthy diet, de-stressing, have good night's sleep, proper supplementation, and a healthy vegan diet, lengthen the telomeres, lengthening the time that's on that clock. So for those of you who are stressed, maybe your work, maybe your lifestyle, take 200 milligrams of theanine, especially in the evening. And from the Hangyang University Medical Center in Korea, they studied 50,000 Korean adolescents and those who used a smartphone for more than four hours a day had higher rates of adverse mental health and substance use. So, wherever possible, limit the use of these electronic devices. And if you wonder why, why? Go to GaryAndAll.com, go to articles, go to 5G articles, and read my latest article, which is the most definitive article that I'm aware of, written anywhere on the dangers of 5G, smartphones, tablets, Wi-Fi, etc. It has all the evidence there, thousands of studies. All right? That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back, because I have a really important commentary to share with you today. It's for everyone. No one is excluded from its benefits. 
back in a moment. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Right now, we're going to go to a clip, a couple clips, and then followed by a new commentary, a commentary on the Populist Manifesto to Save America. I hope that you take it seriously. You can download it later today off prn.live and garynall.com. But this is going to lead into it. They did a really good job. I want to commend the people at Second Thought. And this video is called, Are We Living Through the End of an Empire? It's not that long, but wow, does he cover a lot of material. And he, he just hits the bullseye on this. So let's hear what he has to say and watch it. Go to PRN.live, scroll down to archive, scroll down to Gary and All Notes, and watch this. And then we'll have some discussion. You can call in afterwards and share your thoughts at 888-874-4888. Now to the clip. Throughout the well-worn pages of history, empires have risen, grown to prominence, and collapsed into the mist of time. The Roman Empire, stretching from the sweltering sands of Africa to the murky woods of northern England. The British Empire and her dominance of the Seven Seas. Radio Shack. All of these and more have become the stuff of legend, each with their own stories of success, expansion, and ultimately, collapse, unable to bear the weight of their inherent contradictions. But are all empires destined to meet this fate? And the question on everyone's mind, probably because it's the title of this video, are we living through the end of an empire? In this episode, we'll take a look at the precarious position of the United States and consider some historic parallels to assess whether the U.S. is really in decline. Alright, here we go. I'm ready. Nope, that's terrible. Alright, I'm ready. Mm, shouldn't. Ah, Rome. Or should I, or are we doing this as two takes? Okay, here we go. I'm ready. Ah, Rome. The empire all other empires aspire to be. From their breathtaking architecture, to their lavish feasts, to their penchant for feeding people they don't like to wild animals, Rome is truly the shining example of what other nations can only hope to accomplish. We can't really talk about empires or empires in decline without talking about the Roman one. And it just so happens that Americans, from politicians to far-right history YouTubers, love to compare the US to Rome. So, is there something to this comparison? Is the US the new Rome? In a lovely bit of cosmic irony, the first book of Edward Gibbon's ambitious six-volume work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, was published in 1776, on the eve of the birth of a new empire, one that would go on to become arguably the most powerful in history. In some ways, the United States and the Roman Empire do have a lot in common. Behold, dear Petronius! My new Rome. An insatiable desire for expansion, extreme inequality, a globe-spanning network of influence, a penchant for chattel slavery, military dominance, and decadent displays of wealth. There have been countless books, essays, political diatribes, and social media posts earnestly comparing the United States to Rome, and often for good reason. Both empires were bogged down in endless wars, both displayed a shocking level of wealth inequality, both suffered economic crises that commentators in both eras were certain would spell the final end of the golden age of civilization. And if we're being honest, both had about the same response to disease outbreaks. Which is to say those in power let a whole lot of people die and isolated themselves as best they could. 
But we should also note that a lot of the people making these comparisons are only doing it because they have this weird thing about mythologizing the United States. It's a very young country, comparatively speaking. So what better way to afford it a little extra grandeur than giving ourselves the title of the New Rome, the shining city on a hill, the glorious republic that commands the world itself. That fits very nicely into the whole Manifest Destiny, American exceptionalism thing. We'll get back to that towards the end of the video. But first, we need to address what the end of an empire actually looks like. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the fall of Rome. Despite the popularity of the phrase, most academics have moved on from the term fall when talking about the Roman Empire. The consensus now is that it wasn't any single inflection point that triggered a dramatic collapse, but an agonizing, generations-long slide into a decreased standing in the world. There wasn't one single point where we could say, Rome was an empire yesterday, and today it's a failed project. The real world doesn't work like that. There were certainly some instances one could point to as chapter markers near the end of the story. For example, around the year 476, there wasn't really an emperor claiming the vast swaths of land the empire had once held with an iron fist. But if we're looking for a Marvel-esque announcement that Rome has fallen, we're not gonna find one. What we can trace, and it's easier to do so in retrospect, is a series of minor failures that go unaddressed. Crumbling infrastructure due to lack of investment, rampant corruption, severe inequality, dwindling trust in institutions or leadership, humiliating military defeat, or endless conflict sapping resources. These all add up to a very real challenge to the structure of an empire. To take the Roman example, the city of Rome itself had been sacked multiple times, but what really did the city in was when the supply chain failed. State-subsidized grain shipments on state-subsidized ships tied up at state-subsidized docks. Eventually, as the state was less able or willing to maintain these mundane but crucial projects, things sort of just fell apart over time. It's never one big collapse, it's death by a thousand cuts. Countless, seemingly insignificant failures that together add up to an inability to function. A useful way to think about this can be found in Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, which is now actually a really good show if you're into sci-fi. Much like Harry Seldon prophesied a series of crises along the path of the Empire's long and painful collapse, so too can we take a step back and see a handful of big red dots on the timeline of American decline. I don't want to spoil the show, but suffice it to say that it has a really good understanding of the scale we're talking about when looking at the process of decline. It's not a quick and dramatic collapse. These things take decades or even centuries, but the cracks are already there. And every once in a while, a pillar buckles. The Great Depression, the Red Scares and McCarthyist pogroms, 9-11, the 2008 financial crash and Great Recession, COVID, and now the handful of crises that have been simmering for decades and are coming to a head. The climate crisis and the collapse of US imperial control of the periphery. We're losing ground economically, militarily, and geopolitically to China. The US regime's steadfast support for the genocide of the Palestinian people has ensured no country in the third world will ever believe our rhetoric about self-determination and freedom again. Just like that, an entire generation of Americans disabused of the myth that we're the good guys. And this is where the usual Western analysis begins to fail. A lot of people make the mistake of attributing crises of empire to the failures or excesses of individual leaders or people or groups with influence. It's always the other team that's making things go wrong. It's Trump on immigration and LGBT rights. It's Biden on funding endless proxy wars. While megalomaniacs or senile old warmongers can certainly make things worse, 
The underlying logic of the system in which they operate is the determining factor in how the crises they lead us through are handled. Take COVID, for example. I know that we will achieve victory and quickly return to the path of exceptional health, safety, and prosperity for all of our citizens. Uh, we have to get back to work. Our people want to work. They want to go back. They have to go back. Because the United States follows a capitalist economic philosophy, the key consideration during the pandemic was keeping the gears of the market turning, regardless of the human toll. The prime directive of capitalism is the accumulation of capital, and if that means we have to sacrifice low-paid workers on the altar of profit, so be it. There was no meaningful difference between Trump and Biden on this issue, despite the two leaders being characterized as polar opposites by the media class. If you look beneath the aesthetic differences between the two major parties, if you ignore the bombastic rhetoric and empty posturing on social issues and look strictly at the economic base of the system we live under, it's clear that every single great man one could point to is beholden to the same interests, and is therefore more of a byproduct of the system than a leader that changes it. Okay, so if it's not the leaders, then what makes the difference between empires that endure and empires that fall? Every nation and empire in history has faced challenges. Nothing exists in a vacuum. So what sets apart an empire that meets these challenges and one that's on the way out? In a nutshell, resilience. The ability of the system to react to, adapt to, and overcome the challenges they're presented with. Rebuilding key infrastructure after a natural disaster. Reassessing the system after an economic crisis to make sure it doesn't happen again. Taking swift action to protect people from a major disease outbreak. You can probably see where I'm going with all this. Take infrastructure. Flint, Michigan still has undrinkable water, despite the government finally promising to replace the water lines. Much of New Orleans is still destroyed or underwater 18 years after Hurricane Katrina. We have trains going off the rails at a rate of 4.8 derailments per day, many of those trains carrying toxic chemicals, as we saw firsthand when we went to East Palestine, Ohio earlier this year. The United States is notorious for letting its infrastructure fail and never repairing it. When it comes to economic disasters, things aren't any better. In the wake of the 07-08 financial crash and the recession that followed, nearly 10 million Americans lost their homes. Those homes were snatched up by institutional investors like BlackRock, and most of them are still held hostage on the rental market today. Did the government do anything about the conditions that led up to this crisis? Not really. They gave a couple people a slap on the wrist, but the vast majority of the criminal executives that profited from the real estate bubble and swindled the American people got off scot-free. And now, experts are saying it kinda looks like there's another bubble brewing. Most Americans are worse off now than they were in 2007. They haven't recovered. And if there is another crash, things will get even worse for even more people. Then of course, there's COVID. Was there an answer to curbing the death toll of the pandemic? Yes. Did American leadership know what it was? Yes. Did they follow the science and prevent those deaths? No, they did not. In fact, they did the opposite, waxing poetic about the importance of the market and how valued our frontline workers are. And then they moved on. Over a million people died so the line wouldn't go down for a bit. Yet another failure of the American empire. The United States relies on a system that is not and can never be resilient. Capitalism demands running the leanest operation possible. No safety nets, no guardrails. Everything delivered at the last possible moment in the bare minimum amount. Corners cut at all levels of enterprise. When all the reasonable cuts have been made, then they come for the nickels and dimes. That means stripping benefits, 
No more pensions, no more healthcare, no more vacation time or parental leave. It means moving from employment to gig work, full-time hours to piecemeal contracts. And all of this is just on the domestic front. Those in power don't care if they have a pissed off workforce. They know we have to accept whatever job we can get or we starve. There's no choice there. What they do care about is maintaining their geopolitical interests abroad. But once again, because of the logic of capitalism, the empire's grip is slipping. When we're the only game in town, we can give developing countries loans with obscenely exploitative conditions. We can force them to privatize, to sell off their industry to American investors, to buy back the goods that their own resources produced at exorbitant rates. Of course, the rest of the world hates us. But we don't care. We're the dominant world power. So in our arrogance, we outsource all our manufacturing to China to cut costs. Meanwhile, China has been taking the long view, thinking five years ahead, ten years ahead, following common sense development plans, raising the standard of living of their people, building high-tech, modern cities that blow our infrastructure and productive capacity out of the water. And then, eventually, while we were busy bombing a dozen countries at once and making enemies around the world, China extends their hand in collaboration. Now there's a second economic superpower in the mix, one that offers development aid without the ridiculous requirements, one that benefits all involved parties, that looks ahead to a more connected, collaborative future and not one of imperialist domination. It's no wonder the US is losing trade deals and borrowers left and right. They're simply a better alternative. And when a country that has become entirely dependent on extracting wealth from the third world loses the ability to do so, what happens? They lash out. They get more violent. They start proxy wars in geostrategic locations to try to regain the upper hand. When a more lucrative or more strategic option becomes available, they dump their previous lackey and leave them to implode and be carved up by foreign investors. There's a reason we're looking at war with Russia over Ukraine, war with China over Taiwan, and war with the entire Arab world over Israel. It's because war is the last chance the US empire has to give itself a shot in the arm and limp along for another few decades as the dominant power. Will it work? We'll see. But here's the thing we really need to internalize. We now live in a time where there is no longer anyone alive who remembers a time before American global dominance. Since World War II, and certainly since the illegal dissolution of the Soviet Union, the US has had very nearly uncontested control of the world. This has led to a perception among Americans, even those who are critical of the country's behavior, that the US really is special. That our empire won't go the way of all the others. That somehow we'll overcome all these challenges and avoid collapse or fading into irrelevance. We all have to grapple with the fact that this will not be the case. We are living through the end of an empire. It may not seem dramatic, it might not fit the apocalyptic vision of collapse we've come to expect, it may take another hundred years, but the US is on the way out. The contradictions have become so sharp and the failures so frequent that it should be clear to all but the most devoted acolytes to the cult of capitalism that the American empire has begun to wane. Your turn to call in, your turn to share your thoughts. 888-874-488. We're going to take a break and when we come back, I have a commentary I want to share with you because I believe that it's now time for us to realize we're not going to be saved on any of the major crises, environmental problems. They're not going to save us. Infrastructure, bridges, tunnels, waterways, dams, they're not going to save us. They're not going to do anything. They're going to exploit us, but they're not going to protect us. We have to do that ourselves. How do we do it? I've got an idea. Back in a moment with that idea. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. This is a continuation of the series that I'm going to be sharing with you over many months, and that is to step back and look at all the different things happening in the world, and then ask, does any of this impact me or my, my group, my tribe, my political party, my religion, my faith, my health, the health of the environment? But we're not doing that. We have become so myopic that our world is shrinking. The more stressed, the older we get, the less commitment we have to reaching up, looking up, raising ourselves up from the sordid contempt for the average person that those in power have. Yesterday, the workers for the New York Post went on strike. Jeff Bezos and his fiancée are out buying up properties all over the world. And, uh, or at least in the United States, hundreds of millions of dollars. So what would it mean for him just to give them a guaranteed um, salary that they're asking for, 50000 a year? He doesn't want to do that. He has to be forced to do everything. Those in power always have to be forced. Otherwise, on their own, there's no thought of changing anything. Why change? We're in power. Who got rich and richer? under COVID, Bill Gates, and all the other people who have a stake in big pharma, things we can't invest in or wouldn't out of ethics. And yet, we're supposed to sit quietly by and do nothing except what they tell us we're allowed to do. Think only what we're allowed to think and accept some of the most vile concepts like critical race theory, and uh, the race hustlers and all the other people who are filled with hate towards everything. My God, I wouldn't want to have those people in my life, and I wouldn't as a friend because everything in their life is in contempt of life. So I broke it into two categories. One category is what can we do, what we must do, and that's going to be most of my program today. The other is what can we not do, but we need to put those in power people in power who will do it. Now, right now, none of the Democrats or Republicans either desire or would make any major changes because the people who control them, and they're all controlled, all the presidents have been controlled clear back to Eisenhower, and they're doing only what the deep state players want them to do, or BlackRock and Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and Fidelity and others. So where does that leave us? It leaves us by saying, stop voting Democrat and Republican, unless you want to be a part of it, because you will be. Take a look around. What was he talking about? The decline of civilizations, which frequently takes centuries. In our case, it's been less than 150 years. But now it's accelerating. Now the old models of how we measure the degeneration of a community, a city, a planet, are on steroids. And if you don't think this is happening, then you're not connecting the dots. For example, he mentioned Flint, Michigan. Yeah, that was 15 years ago. And it was found to have the most toxic water in America. Nothing has changed there. But now we have over 5,000 additional communities whose water is as or even more toxic than Flint. Nothing done about it. 
We have done nothing to clean up our Superfund sites since we decided we were going to have a Superfund and do it because we had other priorities. But those priorities are not priority and, and Syria. Syria wasn't doing anything. Everything you heard about Syria was a lie. But also Iraq, another lie. And where do you expect all those people who were made homeless to go? We, we, we were not asking ourselves when we were bombing them that we had 40 million people in one country, 22 million people in another country, uh, uh, 37 million people in another country, and we just destroyed their capacity to live. We destroyed their homes, as we're doing now in Gaza. Did anyone ask, gee whiz, what is it like? Hmm. I don't have the video to play for you today because I don't have the time, but on our next program, a medical doctor out of Norway, Professor Emeritus, has been in Gaza, and he's saying, showing you video that he's just got. I just watched the video this morning. It's just, it's heart-rendering. Yes, there was a child, an Israeli child, killed. Not all that they said, and almost everything they've been telling you are lies when we actually uncover the truth. But there's been 9,000, as of today, known children killed in Gaza. There could be another 30,000 under the rubble. There could be 100,000 people dead right now because no one has gone in to look at the actual buildings, to deconstruct what we can and pull the dead bodies out. But there are massive amounts of destruction. I just saw a video of uh, an entire community, huge community, bigger than if you put it all in Central Park times five, totally rubble. What about all the people who were living there when that, when that bombing occurred? They're not accounted for. So the man said this, we should care and we should be touched and, and concerned when one Israeli child dies. But we don't seem to have any concern for the blood of 9,000 children being killed. And that's true. Will we still be supporting it? Whose bombs are killing them? American bombs. Who pays for those bombs? You do. So... We say that one set of lives are worth, worthwhile because we're propagandized to believe that. Another set of lives has no value. One's demonized, the other is glorified. For decades, as if we're not intellectually capable or politically desirable to pull back and see the truth of what is happening. But let's not take it universally. We could. But let's also go to Los Angeles. 50 straight, 56 straight blocks, including from downtown clear out to the freeway, one encampment after another. Now, I, I know people who live in the buildings that were multi-million dollar apartments, but now they look down and all they see is tents, drugs, gangs, crime, and that's now considered normal. Don't worry, step over the, the feces and the needles and get into your a chauffeur-driven car to go to where you work, a sanctuary someplace, a building that's not yet contaminated by human suffering, as if human suffering is a contaminant rather than a crisis that we help create. Who created that? Your legislators did. The corrupt system in California, which is totally corrupt. Your governor did. Your mayors did. Your DAs did. Now it's normal in New York City. To, hey, hey, carjackings in broad daylight. Um, uh, Hundreds of people descending upon a store and destroying it. Uh, shoplifting that cost $4 billion last year and cost hundreds of businesses to go out of business. And what did anyone do about it? Nothing. Nothing. I see. 
in San Francisco is now in decline. And it's not coming back. And Detroit's in decline. It's not coming back. Nothing is coming back. It's only getting worse. So what do we do? We maladapt. A term that I coined to show that instead of adapting to a positive environment, and historically we have, being a good citizen, being a good person, being moral and ethical, caring about yourself, caring about your family, caring about your beliefs, caring about your neighbors, caring about your society, as we once did, now we, we're afraid to go out in broad daylight. Now people have to look back and forth on subways because there's a slasher. How many times have they been arrested? Numerable. Anything done? No. Because now we respect the rights of the criminal, but not the victim. How does that happen? That happens and has in almost all of these collapsed societies. So when we see the average person can't write you a check for $500 or $1,000, and we're talking about 250 million Americans, you would think that someone would do something about it, like charging them 22% interest. That's the average interest you pay on your credit cards as of today, 22%. Tony Soprano and the gangs of New Jersey would not have charged you that much. That that's normal, and it goes up from there. Payday loans could go up to 1,000% interest. And who helped get those in place? Joe Biden. Yeah. Don't want to look at his history? Then don't. Because we are the corrupt in our society don't want to look back because everything back is dark and dirty. Look now. We're empowered, they say. We can do anything we want. We have a totally corrupt FBI. That's why I played the tape yesterday. But you would know that because New York Times has never had the courage by even one of its employees, not one, or the Washington Post, to sit down and grill these deplorable individuals at the Justice Department, from the Attorney General to the head of the FBI, or any of these other agencies that have weaponized the body politic into its corpus. So you, if you're a Catholic, suddenly you're under their radar. 200,000 illegal uh, searches by the FBI, not a single employee held accountable. No one is ever held accountable in power, ever but you're held accountable for everything. You're demeaned, you're degraded. So that's where we're at. So if you want to see a society in decline, the end of, a, end of an entire culture, the destruction of our entire educational system, where you put these morons heading major universities, well, okay, then what do you expect is the outcome to be? We pay doctors, we pay lawyers, we pay people for their effort but never for their results. So they're rewarded for mediocrity. They're rewarded for, they're rewarded for minor effort. Even when they know something's less likely to work, hey, it's the protocol, let's give it, we're going to get our money no matter what. That's where we're at. We're worse than Rome at this point. Here are the issues that cannot be resolved in any short term and would require long-term gradual incremental changes but only if we're able to get the right people into office. Unraveling the entrenched intelligence apparatus within the deep state, such as reinventing the CIA, just cut it off and make all those people who are responsible for illegal actions held accountable. Will we do it? I'm telling you what will not happen by any government or any politician this moment, but this is what needs to be done. In a moment, I'll tell you what we can do. But we need to get rid of all these 16 intelligence agencies and just have one agency 
that is, has public oversight. Has it been with us since before Eisenhower? Yes. Even during his farewell speech, he told you about this. It operates as a mini-government unto itself within the current structures of national governance. It decides, based upon the blackmail that it holds over all politicians and major corporate interests, what will be done and what won't be done. Destroying the deep state itself, too many players, both federal and private. That's not going to happen. Restoring the U.S.'s standing in the world within the international community. The only way you can do that is build positive, peaceful efforts. Have ambassadors of peace curtailing the exponential increase of wealth among the richest 1%. Wealth accumulation is something that is in our time of runaway globalization and extends well beyond national borders and whatever domestic economic policies a government imposes. Best can we can do is rule on stricter rules and penalties to avoid fair taxation, such as a harsher penalties on money laundering. Put people who launder, put people who commit white-collar crimes in prison, take away all their assets, and let them join the real world of cause and effect. Reducing the military-industrial complex to solely a defensive operation is necessary. No one in government dares do that. U.S. hegemony, economic and diplomatic, has been built upon U.S. military strength overseas. Too financially lucrative now. Too many people, hundreds of thousands of companies and people working within the military-industrial complex. Everybody benefits from war in that circle. That's who controls us. Reigning in where its collapse will very unlikely ever come from federal policies, but rather from external pressures. Fairer banking and investment regulation won't happen overnight because people, no matter what they're told, they're still going to put their money in the banks, the very banks that abuse them, the very banks that don't give a damn about them. And then when you can't pay your mortgage, that same banker that smiled when you signed the bank and your liar's loan, they're going to take your ba- house back and they'll give you an hour when the marshals come to get all your possessions outside. And you're thinking, but, but I paid you 90% of the mortgage. And they say, well, too bad. Too bad. But no. They look presidential. They sound so good. Look at her wife's dresses. My God, make her president next because she's a fashion icon. Look how superficial her standards are from a reliance upon fossil fuels for energy to cleaner renewables, but why not use the real renewables that don't pollute in the process of getting them to be renewable? Wave power. Use the oceans, the lakes. Use geothermal. Use bladeless wind. And newer solar technologies. But these private-public partnerships only help the partner, not the public and then restore U.S. education to its former glory. It was a time when you graduated from high school or college, you knew how to function. You knew critical thinking. Today, so these are things that will not happen. What we need is we need an authentic Marshall Plan to restore the nation's infrastructure. But we can't do that because of the bipartisan bickering and the self-determination of each politician to care for themselves before they care for the larger picture and their actual constituents. There are a few. There are a few, but rare. So what can we do beyond this? 
where do we have to go in our efforts? That's relatively simple. First of all, I'm calling this a populist manifesto for a new America. I'm going to go through these. I can't go through all of them. There's just too many. I'm posting them today on PRN.live and on GaryNall.com. Create legislation to curtail the vulnerability of people's savings accounts due to the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. Ban all derivative trading. Ban all shorting and naked shorts. Ban any kind of investment where you make money off money instead of the investments for loans have to go into something that actually creates a structure where people can be employed at a living wage in a clean environment, a safe environment, where they have rights as employees. Also, create a commercial plan to rebuild our forest to reduce the acceleration of climate change, reverse Trump's and Biden's opening of public lands to private interest and implement a moratorium on private exploitation of natural parks, e.g. fossil fuels, mining, lumber, create a national food program to ensure that the 16 million minimum children in the United States are fed because 16 million American children go to bed hungry, and yet we're giving over $130 billion with another $60 billion asked for, billion, to go to the most corrupt country in the world, Ukraine, to the most corrupt oligarchs, where, oh, and we are supposed to think that all these weapons, they get uh, taken before they're used, and then all the money that we sent that is now paying for their pensions and their health care system and buying them food, and then all the villas that uh, Zelensky is building around the world, the corruption is just unfathomable. And yet we don't have the money to give to 16 million hungry children in the United States. What kind of people do this? What kind of people who are legislators do this and clear their conscience? Increase regulations. These are things we can do by voting for them and demanding them. Increase regulations on trading in any commodity that's essential to life, meaning take out the middleman in food, the crops, water privatization, because if you do that, then we wouldn't have the high cost of food and fuel. Because now you have the entire food industry, the entire energy industry, water industry, controlled by people who will never plant a seed, never have to worry about making a payment on their farm. And by the way, if you really think America cares about its farmers, why is it in the 1970s when Volcker was head of the federal uh, trade, that, uh, or the, the Fed, that uh, interest rates were as high as 22%? As a result, farmers didn't make 22% profit. So over a million farms had to go bankrupt. They could have stopped that. They could have put a moratorium. They could protect those farmers. They chose not to. It shows you who's really in power. And the same thing is going to happen again in the real estate market. I predict in the next 24 months, you're going to see the collapse of the dollar. You're going to see other countries exceeding us in gross domestic product, in manufacturing, in construction of, of uh major malls and over, you know, look, China has built a long, and I don't like what China does on a human relations. It's, it's, they're, they're dystopian, but what did they do? They built a city that could hold millions of people. They had everything, hospitals, symphonies, 
soccer fields, gyms, everything in that. And who got that? Working class people. That they did right. And how quick did it take them to build a building? A skyscraper in China takes 11 days. You heard me right, 11 days from the time they break ground till they finish. For us, it might take two to three years. Would we build a city that uh, could hold five million working class people with quality of life? We wouldn't even want to. We'll build Hudson Yards in a poor neighborhood. Why don't you do what I did? Why don't you go down and ask all the people in that neighborhood, have you benefited from it? You opened up a restaurant. They're not coming, are they? No, they're not. You open up a haberdasher, they're not coming. You open up a woman's salon and a men's salon, they're not coming. You open up a spa, they're not coming. So you did all this thinking that that's an anchor there historically, that would have worked 50 years ago. It doesn't work today. Now Hudson Yards is its own environment. There's a dining room on the ground floor for the millionaires inside, but then there's one for billionaires higher up. What's the difference in the food? There's no difference in the food. It's just the in the idea that if I'm this rich, I don't want to be eating and hanging out with fleas who are just millionaires downstairs. Shame on them. Wipe your shoes before you come in to the billionaires class. Oh, you can't because you can't afford the fees. Just like exclusive golf clubs, exclusive Ivy League clubs. And you're just not a part of the club. So they have these elite environments. How much did it cost someone now to get a top floor or a big floor? Well, it was around $190 million for an apartment. What exactly are you buying? Yes, Americans knew the cost of everything and the value of nothing. It's the value of something that matters. So the more pricey a building becomes, then the more prices landlords want everywhere. Well, what about if you're just a working class person and you don't have extra money or you've been living in a place on Social Security? doesn't matter. So that's the world we live in today. So just understand something. You better understand that when the government refuses to bail out and stop massive unemployment, massive poverty, that it help create. Because they ship your job overseas so that slave labor could make your product and yet you somehow still vote for these people? That's on you then not them. That's the Stockholm Syndrome. When you begin to you begin to align yourself with your own captors and torturers. We completely eliminate the Federal Reserve. It's neither federal nor is it a reserve. It's not a federal agency. And as a result, it lives by its own rules. And Alan Greenspan, a person that should never have a monument built in his name, uh, had thousands of Ph.D. economists, and yet he said they couldn't see the 2008 uh, Christ, crisis coming. We did. I talked about it. We have too many people out there I, I, who are buying things with a few dollars down and assuming it's going to go up. I had a school teacher friend of mine who bought five houses in South Bay. Of course, later went bankrupt. A lot of these people went bankrupt. The speculators went bankrupt. And we've been encouraged to speculate all along. Declare a national moratorium on home foreclosures now that the U.S. and Europe is on the verge of recession. And if you don't think we're not going to revisit 2008 in the next two years, you're not paying attention. We will. Forgive student loan 
late fees, and cap all interest rates at 1%. Allow them to file bankruptcy so they don't carry that debt and become a peonage uh, refugee to the banking system. By the way, who holds 40% of all the student debt? The federal government. It could erase it all in a heartbeat. Eliminate all payday loans and credit card interest rates, late or not, um, not at 18%. No. Get it down to 4%. Why? Because the money is costing them 1%, so they're making 300% profit. Support senior citizens with free community hospital services and food co-ops. So if you're poor and you're older, you have a place to go to get healthy food, not expired food to some of the food banks, and you don't have to wait for four hours in a long line that a recent uh, video showed of people out in California waiting to get into a food bank because they had no food. Where's your governor? Well, Gary can't be bothered. He's got his hair appointment. That takes three days to do his hair. So he looks like a human being. But he looks so good. We've got to vote for him for something. President, that's it. Wow. What standards we hold. Eliminate all federal subsidies to all federal agencies. If they can't handle it, let them go bankrupt. Remove the influence of money for elections. Take all money out of all elections. I don't have the time to go into this, but I've written a whole article how you could take all the money out of elections, federal, state, local, all municipalities, and you put it into allowing people to fill out forms about and do a video about what their position would be on a series of topics that would be important for the job that they would be asked to take. Then the American public can go online, they can read this, they can see the person, and then have a lottery where you put these people so they can debate one another, and so you can see at the end who you believe is most qualified to do the job, and base it upon qualifications, not how they look, not their gender. No, that has to stop. Hold all corporate funding of candidates. Eliminate, make it illegal for all PACs, because the PACs are the billionaires, they create these, and they select who they want to be in office. Forbid corporations to publicly or privately endorse candidates or solicit endorsements or funding from candidates through the use of corporate resources. However, individual officers and employees of a corporation are free to endorse any candidate they want. But if you take the money out of elections, you suddenly got average, normal, working-class people who have a chance to have their voices heard and the needs of their constituents, the populist, actually something helping them. Forbid all resource uh, sources of funding for candidates except for government funding. Let the government pay for this. Launch a federal review and audit of partisan astroturf groups. Audit Alex, Americans for Prosperity, Center for American Progress, American Council on Science and Health, MoveOn.org, and support stronger laws to limit their influence on federal and state legislators. A, co a congressional investigation of USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy that clean them of intelligence agency influence and are interference so that they may serve their stated mission and see serving as a vehicle of interference or in our replacement for foreign governments. Pardon all whistleblowers. Strengthen whistleblower protection laws 
and anyone in government or corporate interest who tries to attack a whistleblower, that person should be uh, penalized. Campaign finance reform, I mentioned that. Uh, Normalize foreign relations with China and Russia. If we keep our mindset now, they keep being the source of more money going in, more propaganda against them. There's a way that we can normalize relationships and work towards a peaceful resolution. But we don't want that because that's not profitable. We're going to see us go from a unipolar agenda of the World Economic Forum and move closer towards a national recognition of the rapidly multipolar world that is dethroning the dollar hegemony. Reduce military budget to the size no greater than needed to defend the nation from attack. That's about 70% reduction in our military budget. Simultaneously converting our factories, manufacturing facilities, environmental resources, technology, technology and labor from war-making production to the production of consumer goods, infrastructure renewal, cultural enrichment, and other societally important beneficial ends. In effect, a reversal of World War II policies when piecemeal factories, manufacturing facilities, and environmental resources, and technology and labor were converting from producing automobiles and washing machines and sewing machines and other goods to the production of military hardware and weapons. The government would use the no longer exaggerated budget to smooth the conversion and retain the labor pool. Begin closing the 800-plus foreign military bases that serve no defensive purpose while retaining through redeploying to civilian jobs. Help the soldiers go from military to civilian. Have a transition period. Cease conducting provocative confrontational military exercises and war games near borders and territorial waters. Ban interference or participation over to covert in foreign domestic affairs. Stop killing foreign leaders. Stop killing labor leaders in South America. Stop killing pro-democracy and uh, populist leadership as we did in with, that's what got uh, with Henry Kissinger. We should have played uh, from the Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch is dead when Henry Kissinger died because, man, that man was just pure, in my opinion, pure evil. But uh, he was he was a darling of the neoconservative movement. Immediately cease any current operations other than intelligence gathering by the 17 agencies. We don't need 17 intelligence agencies. And don't put it in place. You go in there and destabilize the democratically elected government on the behalf of certain corporate interests, then you go to prison for life. Restore healthy relations with international institutions and also um, understand, I'm looking at the clock and we're running out of time. I will continue this on our next one, but review and where advisable, reactivate, restore, ratify, or sign international treaties and agreements. Do not sign under any conditions the World Health Organization's treaty. In fact, we should get rid of the World Health Organization it's a corrupt organization. And we want to make sure that human rights and the environment are protected by these treaties. So if we're not in the right treaty, terminate it, withdraw from it, refuse to sign, or simply refuse to honor it. For example, additional protocols to the Geneva Convention, the Arms Trade Treaty, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, Convention on Biological Diversity, 
the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the Landmine Ban Treaty, which the United States never signed, Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the Minsk Agreement between Ukraine and Russia, the Rome Statue on the International Criminal Court, the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants, the International Covenant, uh, Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UN Convention on the Right of the Child, the International Labor Convention, the Geneva Convention in 1954, the Paris Climate Accord, the Convention of, on Torture, the nu uh, Iran Nuclear Agreement. We need to know which uh, treaty we should support and which one we should abandon. The U.S. has unilaterally aggregated to itself the right to, to set these rules as well as a bank or, or to break or ignore them whenever it pleases or so desires. We've got to hold America accountable, and it hasn't been. It needs to be. This is only one-third of the suggestions I have for what we can do at the level of telling the world our concerns and making sure that any candidate signs a pledge of what it will do. And you can use some of what I'm sharing as, will you do this? Will you do this? Will you do this? And if they say no, then don't vote for them. There'll be candidates coming up who will honor the people, a populist manifesto. And that's at this time what I believe we need. I'm out of time. I want to thank you all for listening. I will share more on an upcoming program. Have a nice day. And now stay tuned for a very empowering program coming up.